0: And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. It's Friday, and we're talking about Minnesota politics this hour. Later, the candidates for Hennepin County attorney debate. But first, one of the most closely watched campaigns for Congress this year is in the state's 2nd district, which includes the south metro suburbs, all of Scott, Dakota, Goodhue, and Wabasha counties, and parts of Rice and southern Washington County. Since 2019, the district has been represented by DFLer Angie Craig. She's a former journalist and a former business executive. She serves on the Agriculture, Energy, and Commerce Committee and the Small Business Committee. She's facing a challenge this year from Republican Tyler Kistner, who also ran against her two years ago. And I'll just say before we start, we invited Tyler Kistner to come on. He couldn't make it work in his schedule this week, but we hope to have him on soon. And Congresswoman Angie Craig joins me now. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Mike, thanks for having me, and uh, happy start of election season today.
0: Well, there you go. Uh, Let's get right into the issues. A lot of people are having a tough time in this economy with inflation, higher prices for food, transportation, other things. Republicans, including your opponents, say President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief law, the American Rescue Plan, that that contributed to inflation. Uh, Do you agree, and do you have any regrets about voting for it in 2021?
1: Well, Mike, uh, inflation, as we all know, because we can look uh, around the globe in other countries, uh, is a global issue. Uh, we're seeing supply chain disruptions that have uh, caused a lot of inflation across the uh, the country and across the globe. And so, I think probably uh, two thirds of inflation has been uh, caused by that. Uh, but look, I've said from the beginning this is a little bit like that uh, that old game whack a mole um, at One point in America, we had a 10% unemployment rate. We had businesses shuttered. And so on a bipartisan basis in the last session of Congress, um, I worked with my Republican uh, colleagues and with former President Trump. We passed the Paycheck Protection Program. We passed uh, the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. A lot of funds to keep America going and running. And I'll just end with this. Uh, A lot of other nations... Aren't still creating jobs. A lot of other nations don't have an unemployment rate that is now below 4%, and a Minnesota unemployment rate uh, that is uh, 1.9%. So we certainly have a lot of work left to do. That's why I've been pushing the administration to release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It's why I've been uh, leading legislation for year round sales of E15 or ethanol. And I'm going to keep doing everything I can, including. Uh, I supported the Inflation Reduction Act, which, of course, will lower the cost of health care for thousands of Minnesotans here in the next year.
0: Well, let's talk about that law, because, as you say, it does does involve health care. Also, a big chunk of that legislation is for climate change. Um, Is it more of a climate change bill than an inflation fighter?
1: You know, what economists say is that this bill in total is going to put downward uh, pressure on inflation. But you're exactly right. It it does both. One, it helps us transition to more renewable energy. Um, You know, the largest bill in decades uh, uh, to do that. And of course, the largest single investment in reducing carbon emissions in our nation's history, which is incredibly important. But I think one thing that um, goes missed in that discussion, too, is you know, this is uh, about as close to an all of the above uh, energy approach as you can possibly get. I've been a supporter of if we need to go in and uh, allow more drilling for oil and natural gas right now as we accelerate accelerate our transition to renewable energy and renewable fuels like ethanol and biodiesel, that that's what we need to do. And I do see this uh, as a significant contributor to that. So uh, that's the energy part. And then on the healthcare side you know health, lowering the cost of healthcare has been one of my highest priorities in my nearly 4 years in congress i spent 22 years working in two healthcare manufacturing companies i ran the uh, health plan for 16,000 covered lives here in the united states for a fortune 500 company before i got to congress so the elements of this of uh, extending the aca tax credits of uh, capping senior drug cost at $2,000 a month, my bill that will cap insulin cost at $35 a month, allowing Medicare to negotiate on certain drugs. All of that has been uh, my, one of my highest priorities since I've been a member. And so taken in context of energy and healthcare and the fact, throw in there that this is gonna reduce the deficit by $300 million over the decade, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big win-win-win type of legislation.
0: Another issue on people's minds, violent crime went up in Minnesota 22% uh, from uh, 2020 to 2021. What can you do in Congress? What will you do in another term to try to uh, push back on that increase in crime?
1: Well, supporting law enforcement and public safety is, is really the most important job of any elect, elected official. And so that's a responsibility that I've taken very seriously. And it's why I was incredibly proud this week to have earned the endorsement of the uh, Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association. And in fact, um, I also was able to earn the endorsement of Dakota County Sheriff Tim Leslie. Uh, constituents in Dakota County comprise about 60% of my congressional district. Look, Mike, I've been willing to stand up and say uh, the rhetoric uh, on the left is not helpful, uh, not for retaining uh, good police officers, not for building a pipeline of good police officers. But I also have to say what is incredibly unhelpful is from my colleagues on the right who want to make supporting law enforcement uh, a political wedge issue. You know, the other side now sees this as something that uh, they can just lie and and run against Democrats on, even when it's not true. I was the first member of the federal delegation to stand up and call the Minneapolis ballot initiative to eliminate their police department exactly what it is. It, It was a really bad idea. That's why I voted to increase funding for our local police departments to fight for COPS grants, for SAFER grants. Um, and in fact, just this week in Washington, my one of my last votes as I left town uh, late last night to get back to Minnesota um, was on the Invest to Protect Act, which is uh, a bill that uh, I uh, helped introduce uh, way back in January that would create a new $60 uh, million grant program for small and medium-sized police departments. So look, we've got to address crime and public safety. And one of the ways that I believe we can do that is uh by working with people like Dean Phillips here in Minnesota, the congressman from the third, who has a bill called the Pathways to Policing Act, um, which is gonna help us build the pipeline. But uh you know we we've we we've gotta we've gotta stop the rhetoric uh and and really dig in and look at the data, look at the issues, how do we support our local law enforcement?
0: We're talking with DFL Congresswoman Angie Craig this hour. Uh, you have said that you believe a Republican-controlled House would pass a national abortion ban and that you support codifying Roe v. Wade in federal law. How likely is that to happen even if Democrats manage to keep control of the House in this year's election?
1: Well, uh, that depends on our ability to hold the House, number one. But we also have to uh, to go into pro-filibuster uh, reform seats over in the Senate. Look, the, the, the biggest contrast between me and my GOP opponent, Tyler Kissner is that he's called himself a 100% pro-life. And then, of course, he took it off his website. Now he's added it back. Um, he called Lindsey Graham's bill that would uh, ban abortion at 15 weeks, introduced last week in the Congress, uh, something that looked reasonable. Look, that bill actually would put doctors in prison for performing healthcare services. So, you know, uh, Tyler has signed a pledge that uh, he would leave in place at the time he's elected any law on the books in states around our country. Well, look, the state, we can't afford Tyler Kissner. He, one in three American women have now already lost access to their reproductive rights. And, you know, this is, this is very personal to me. Women across this country, um, they've signed up to volunteer. They've said to me, we cannot have our personal rights and freedoms taken away. They see this as an invasion of privacy. And at the end of the day, um, no politician or government, state government or federal government belongs in this decision whatsoever. This is between a woman, her doctor, her family and her faith. And with me as your member of Congress in the second district, uh, I will stand up to codify Roe v. Wade into law.
0: As I say, we have invited Tyler Kissner to come on, and uh, we hope he will in the next uh, week or so. Um, let me ask you about a story the New York Times reported last week. said you were one of the members of the House with possible conflicts of interest because of stock trades made by you or a family member. Did you uh, do something ethically wrong there?
1: Well, I, I actually, I reported the trade just uh, as it was... Uh, Uh, required under law. Uh, I am a a mother to four sons. They're uh, between the ages of 19 and nearly 25 years old. When I was uh, sworn into Congress, I sold every piece of stock uh, that I held. Uh, I sold all the options I had uh, when I was an executive at St. Jude Medical. But when you send a a 19-year-old Uh, a 19-year-old to college, uh, and he decides to experiment with uh, day trading, uh, sometimes there's uh, very little that a mother can do about it. So I I, I have uh, been an active proponent of banning members of Congress uh, from trading individual stocks. And I'm really uh, actually very pleased to see that it looks like that framework was released yesterday and that we could have a bill on the floor uh, quick. But uh, I sort of teased in my response that uh, I found out my 19 year old was day trading because uh, you know I have to ask my kids every year uh, you haven't done anything in the stock market have you and of course I, I guess i'm I'm lucky that he, he told his mom the truth and uh, now I'm trying to pass a bill uh, that would essentially keep my my college kids from uh, from day trading as a member of Congress
0: well uh, speaking of college kids who need money, um... What do you think about uh, President Biden's decision to forgive student loans?
1: Well, Mike, I I think that that was the president uh, fulfilling a a campaign promise. I actually think that uh, the bigger issue is the cost of higher education in our country and the intersection um, that it has with other opportunities for kids. As I said before, I'm the proud mother of, of four sons, and one of those sons, Josh, decided to go to trade school and get a technical degree and become a machinist. And I actually think we've just done a disservice to America's youth uh, by uh, the environment we've created in our nation's high schools that basically says every single one of them has to go and get a a four-year degree and that we need more programs like Shakopee's Pathways programs to show these kids that there are all kinds of great careers out there that will allow you to Uh, have a great career, and build a great life. So that's why I've been so actively supporting Dakota County Technical College and other trade skill programs at my time in Congress. That's why I've offered a bill, the 21st Century Partnership Act, which would allow employers and uh, local schools to have these public-private partnerships. So, uh, you know, the president fulfilled a campaign promise, uh, but I think that there's a larger issue that Congress really does need to address.
0: Uh, Just a very short time left to go. I I don't know that this question has come up much, but, you know, the U.S. has sent more than $13 billion to Ukraine over the past year or so to help uh, the military there fight the war against Russia. Uh, Is it working? Would you support more money for Ukraine?
1: I think that there will be strong bipartisan support for uh, continued um, support for Ukraine, whether that be equipment, uh, whether those be dollars. I've I, I really never in the four years I've been there seen such bipartisan support. And, and I do think it's working. I, I think you can just look at the, the news in the last 24 hours where uh, Putin has got to go, uh, you know, draft uh, new young people in his country. You know, frankly, uh, at the beginning of this um, illegal occupation of Ukraine, You know, he drafted from the southern part of Russia so that, uh, you know, those uh, centers in the the urban centers in Russia um, wouldn't be talking to each other and and, uh, essentially criticizing the war effort. But uh, I I think that this is a sign that uh, he knows he's in trouble, but I also think he's in it for the long run, that that is uh, that's who he is. And uh, it's going to be very difficult in the short term uh, to stop him.
0: Congresswoman Angie Craig, thanks so much for coming on. Mike, it's a pleasure. That's dfl -er Angie Craig. She represents Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District. She's running against Republican Tyler Kistner. We have invited him to come on, too, and we look forward to talking to him. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're going to move now from the congressional level to uh, the state's most populated county. More than 1.2 million people live in Hennepin County, which includes the city of Minneapolis and several surrounding suburbs. Among the choices for voters in the county this year is who should be the next Hennepin County attorney. Longtime incumbent Mike Freeman is not seeking re-election, and there are two candidates competing to replace him. Last week, the Building Owners and Managers Association of Greater Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Downtown Council, and the Minneapolis Regional Chamber of Commerce sponsored a debate. Our own Brian Baxt moderated. We thought you might want to hear it. Here's Brian Baxt.
2: So just first, I'm going to say a little bit about the office, since a lot of folks don't always know what these offices are about. The Hennepin County Attorney's Office is the biggest public law firm in the state. It exceeds even the state attorney general's office in the size. Uh, the office has more than 450 lawyers and support staff handled more than 13,000 cases last year, most of them drug or domestic violence related. The office also handles civil child protection and child support cases. And so just a brief introduction of the two candidates appearing on this November's ballot. I'm sure they'll say more in their respective answers about their backgrounds. But Mary Moriarty is a former Hennepin County public defender and was chief of the office from 2014 to 2020. Martha holton Dimick is a former prosecutor and more recently a Hennepin County district court judge from 2012 until her retirement from the bench in 2021. So we're going to start with some introductory statements where the candidates can say more about who they are and what they're hoping to do in the office. And we'll start with uh, Ms. Moriarty.
3: Thank you. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here today. Um Uh, As Brian mentioned, I was chief public defender and actually worked right in that building over there, the 701 building. I care very deeply about public safety. I care very deeply about downtown because I worked here for 31 years. I had season tickets to the Timberwolves and partial season tickets to the Twins. And I went to dance. I took dance classes at Xenon downtown. So I spend a lot of time downtown. Um, I understand uh, a lot of the issues here because our office did represent a lot of unsheltered people um, who were downtown. And so I understand the concerns that business owners have here. I care very deeply about public safety and I care very deeply about solutions that work. So I really rely on data uh, and research because we can't continue to do the things that we've always done because we know that doesn't work to keep us safe. Um, and we need something new. We need something different than the status quo. And that's what I bring to this race. Thank you.
2: Ms. holton Dimick.
4: Thank you. Thank you. I am very appreciative of being here this morning. I am running for Hennepin County attorney because I want to, because I want to um, restore the trust and the effectiveness of the county attorney's office. Public safety is number one for me. And public safety, please understand, is not a political slogan for me. As a uh, community prosecutor and also as a violent crimes judge, it was my profession. And also, as someone who lives in North Minneapolis for the past 20 years, and someone who has seen the uptick of violence and how is that afe- it has affected my neighborhood, it is my life. I grew up in Milwaukee. I was a single mom. I put myself through nursing school. I was on welfare two years in an associate degree program. And then I finished two years later in a B- and got my BSN. I worked in nursing for over 12 years. So there's compassion in my heart. And also when my daughter got to um, uh, high school, I decided I needed more of a challenge. So I went to law school. I went to Marquette, studied law, graduated in three years, Moved here and I worked in, uh, two law firms for over eight and a half years. Amy Klobuchar hired me in 1999 to be the community prosecutor over north. And we were, um, successful in bringing crime down then by utilizing all of our justice partners. And the Minneapolis Police Department at the time did get a national award. I'm here to, um, extol public safety. It is very important. We cannot enable our criminals anymore. We need to protect our communities.
2: And we'll start with you on the questions here, Ms. Holton Demick. Uh, what is the main trouble spot an office under your leadership will address out of the gate and specifically how will you achieve it?
4: I think our juvenile crime situation is out of control. We need to deal with our young people and we need to put more emphasis on how we're going to do that. We've had a lot of um, su- we have had a lot of information about um, carjackings, and we know that the county home school was closed, and it was closed without um, a plan. And we don't have a custodial environment to put these children in, and these children need to be in a custodial environment so that we can address some of the issues that they're struggling with. They've got trauma in their families, they've got uh, mental health issues and chemical dependency issues. We want to get these pe- these young people into a very safe environment where we can deal with their families and reacclimate them to their communities. Right now, we don't have that. And that's very important. We also have to address Prevention and intervention. I'd start in the middle schools, and then we put somebody in the high schools, also. So we have to pay way more attention to our young people because that's where it starts. I want them out of the criminal um, avenue and into a productive society as as um, productive citizens. Miss Moriarty, gun violence—that's um, a huge issue in our community
3: uh, wherever you live, um, including carjackings that have had guns involved. We know in our country we have more guns than we have people. Um, What I plan to do is focus on gun violence, partner with the U.S. Attorney's Office. I have some ideas about, um, you know, it, it, it can be effective to work at getting one gun off the street at a time, but it would be much more effective if we could stop guns from coming into the community. So I would work with the U.S. Attorney. I would we, the county attorney's office has a civil division too. And I think that there are some lawsuits that can be uh, filed against people who are selling guns. And so it's really gun violence because I think that that is causing a lot of trauma in the community. It's causing trauma downtown and it's something
2: that we need to seriously address. We'll stay with you for this next one here. How do you balance the need to stem the increase in violent crime with concerns about mass incarceration and how that's affected communities of color? That's a great question.
3: Um, you know, you'll hear a lot of people say we have uh, among the lowest incarceration rates in the country. But what people fail to say after that is within those incarceration rates, we have among the highest racial disparities in the country. And so what I plan on doing is keeping data on race um, and gender Uh, in the prosecutor's office. They do have a data dashboard, but it doesn't keep a lot of the data that I think it needs to keep. Like who is charged? Who's not charged? um, What are they charged with? There's a lot of subjective decision-making. And so um, we need to be looking at that. We also need to be looking at who is committing crimes, who is being targeted by police as well, um, because where police focus their resources tends to be the people that come into the system. For instance, um, we know through research that white people actually use drugs more than black people. But when you look at the courts and the people who are charged with drug crimes, it's a majority of black people. So we need to focus on that. Finally, you know, if somebody has committed a crime, there needs to be accountability. Um, and that is really important. And I would also go back to, I'm a big believer in the Office of Violence Prevention in Minneapolis. I worked with them. They have solutions to preventing violence that are data-based and they work. They weren't particularly well-resourced and they do take some time to implement, but they are incredibly effective um, I can say that I've been to many funerals of clients who have been killed and people in the community who have been killed, and they all have one thing in common. Nobody wants to be there. And so to the extent that we can
4: prevent violence, um, we're all better off.
2: Ms. Holton Demick, how do you strike that balance?
4: Thank you. I am against mass incarceration. But if we want to tamp down mass incarceration, we need more police officers on the streets, getting to know our neighborhoods, getting to know our communities, working with our communities, because then we can affect or probably prevent crimes from happening and stop the criminals from being emboldened. Um, I am totally against um, prosecuting individuals if it's based on race, color, national origin, gender, or LBGT. GBQ status. That is not what we do. I've worked in the Hennepin County Attorney's Office for 10 years. I know how to charge a case. I know how to prosecute a case. And I know how to negotiate a settlement. And I also know how to try a case. And that is very, very important. My experience is a lot stronger than an experiment from uh, uh, someone who's just done uh, defense attorney work and has just worked with criminals. My emphasis is on the victims. It's not on the criminals of, of crime. We have to start paying more attention to the victims, which do include our communities.
2: We'll start with you here. You, you heard Ms. Moriarty mention uh, gun violence and, and gun cases. Will your office increase prosecutions for cases involving guns? And could you say a little bit more if you if that's the case?
4: That is a huge emphasis of the, of the office. I know that anyone that, that brandishes a gun to threaten anybody and to take their property or to, to harm them, they need to be prosecuted. And if they're convicted and it's a serious crime, they need to go to prison. Now, we do have alternatives for incarceration, but that's not for violent criminals. And I, and I worked very hard in the county attorney's office to make sure that we got these gun violence um, cases prosecuted quickly, and that's what needs to be done. We also have to address the issue of gun violence with our youth. We see that our youth are using guns to carjack, and they're committing a, a violent crime. They're committing an assault with a dangerous weapon, and we also know that if they take the car, it's an ag robbery. These are two top felony criminal offenses. So we have to address those issues strongly. We cannot just say, let's sign and release them, send them out into the community again, because as we've all heard, 75% of the carjackings were done by the same group of kids.
2: We know the legislature has struggled to pass any new gun laws within the existing framework. What will you do on the gun prosecution front?
3: Do you know, you probably know, um, because I think you're you're pretty well-informed voters that um, it takes Minneapolis police department 15 minutes to respond to a priority one nine one one call. And I want you to imagine that that's the most urgent call. And if you need police uh, to get there, you need them there in less than 15 minutes. Um, It as county attorney. I need police to be there quickly. I need police to do good police work to be able to put together prosecutions for violent crime. So part of the issue is uh, making sure that police are focused on those violent crimes, gun violence, um, that they are putting together good investigations so that we can prosecute effectively. Um, And then looking at who the person is. Um, there are many different kinds of gun crimes, many different kinds. And the prosecutor's job is actually to do the right thing in every individual case. It is The prosecutor's office does not represent any one individual. Uh, They are supposed to do the right thing. And that requires us to look at the individual. There are some people um, who have committed gun crimes, possession crimes, uh, not waving a gun at anybody, who probably need therapy, treatment, and would be better off not going to prison and be rehabilitated because they are going to get out again. That's one thing I think we don't think about. They get out again. They haven't really had any job skill training. They get out. They have a felony. It's hard to get a job, hard to get an apartment. And then what do they do? They go back to doing the same kind of behaviors that they've done when they were in the community. So helping those people there, but there was a successful program with the city attorney's office, a trauma based program uh, where most of the and it was mostly young men who had possession of guns went into it, did not come back on new offenses. So we need evidence based approaches that will keep us safe, not relying on the same old things that we have been doing for decades, which we know um
2: where people come back. And I'll I'll give you one. I I think you're going to get a chance to say more to this next question here, which is going to start with you here. Uh, Chronic offenders consume resources. They can cause damage and pain in communities. How will you decide who fits that description and what will you do about those types of individuals?
3: Yeah, I I think for purposes of this group, when you think of chronic offenders, I think sometimes you're thinking of um, people who are unsheltered, and they hang out downtown and they're panhandling, asking people for money, that kind of thing. Um, one of the things that we did at the Public Defender's Office was pioneer a program. We partnered with the Minneapolis City Attorney's Office and Health and Human Services, and we got social workers to be in the courtroom. So we bypassed probation, we bypassed the judges, and just said, hey, if you're in on those trespass cases, Um, loitering, those kinds of things, go to a social worker, get hooked up with insurance, with housing, all of the things we know people need to keep them from engaging in that behavior. It was so successful. It was called restorative court. It was actually made into a permanent court by the the district court. So that's an example of a creative evidence-based program that we partnered with that worked. And it has helped people. The data on that is very good, that that people who participated do not um, come back as often. In terms of people on violent offenses, you have to look at their backgrounds. Um, You know, we have we know the people who are um, have extensive criminal histories. And if people can't be safe in the community, then they can't be in the community. Um, and, and I am committed to making sure that people are
2: safe in the community. Ms. Holton Dimmick, chronic offenders, who who are they and what do you do about them?
4: Okay, for first of all, the, the offenders downtown are not just panhandlers and they're not people that walk up to you and ask for money. We have open drug exchanges downtown. We have violent crimes downtown, we have shootings downtown, and we have had an increase in the number of folks that refuse to come downtown because of that. They don't want to come downtown for entertainment. They don't want to come downtown even to visit or a restaurant. They just don't want to take advantage of that. We have a serious issue with downtown crime. So we need to be more aggressive in terms of how we manage this crime. We need to figure out what it is that we need to do to keep everyone safe who wants to come down here. And we don't have the police force right now to do that. So when you hear that it takes like X amount of minutes to get a to answer a 911 call, that's because our department's been decimated. It's been decimated because it got sent the wrong message. Defund the police and then turn around and tell everybody, oh, by the way, we, we don't have that many left. What do you think that, how do you think that impacts our communities? Crime rate around the country has gone way up. It's skyrocketed. And see, we have to change the narrative. We have to tell anybody who commits a crime, there are consequences. Depending on the level of crime, that's how we dole out consequences. We have restorative justice, we have diversion, but we have jail and prison for those folks that are threatening people and, and are killing people in our communities. So as far as chronic offenders, those are repeat offenders that are constantly committing crimes. When you're a felon and you get more than five criminal history points, you're considered a career offender. The the stakes are higher in terms of if you're going to go to prison, you're going to go to prison for, for longer than that. Lesser included crimes, we do have avenues and uh, alternatives to incarceration for lesser included crimes where people are just... A pain to their neighbors, they're trespassing, you know, they're loitering with an intent to sale or whatever. But we do have avenues to send them through that are very,
2: very successful. We'll, we'll start with you on this next question here. Uh, there, there have been proposals in the legislature to require county attorneys to provide more documentation or explanation in cases where criminal charges are declined, dropped, or plea bargained. Where, where do you stand on that?
4: Okay, we do. Contrary to what my opponent says, there is data. The county attorney's office has a dashboard. The dashboard is updated every 24 hours. You can find out who's committing crimes, what kind of crimes they're committing, how often they're, they're charged. You can also find any information you want on all of our appellate cases. It's there, it's being done, and it's being updated. So you can find that information on um, our dashboard, it's like I said, it's it's updated every twenty four hours. Um, as far as the legislature requiring county attorneys to um, keep track of their cases, their their um, charges, declines, and deferrals, there are three ways you charge. You either charge a case, defer it, you need more information, or else you decline it. We do that. There is. Uh, um, there is a information that's available to you on how many cases are charged. Every year, it's done on a regular basis. Right now, we're dealing with, when I left the um, the bench, I had over 360 cases on my docket. Can you just imagine how many cases the prosecutors and the defense attorneys are dealing with right now? They're dealing with a monumental number of cases because of the pandemic. We got to play catch up and we have to set our priorities on which cases we're going to deal with. We don't have time to sit up here when we have already done it to have another place that we have to keep track of because it's already being done.
2: Ms. Moriarty, where are you on what the legislature might ask of county attorneys?
4: Yeah,
3: I think transparency is a huge problem. Um, I met with some suburban police chiefs and I said to them, what do you want from the next county attorney? And they said, we'd like you to communicate with us. We'd like to know what your policies are. We'd like you to be present in the community and we'd like you to listen to us, which I think is a really low bar. Um, it was pretty clear to me they didn't know what the policies were, and they had no voice in what um, they felt the policies should be. So there is a lack of transparency in that office. I also heard one of the county commissioners saying he can't get any information from the county attorney's office. I know that the county attorney's office will not release its policy on cri- or the criteria for juvenile diversion, and that's not okay. The county attorney is elected by the people, by you. Um, The county attorney is a public servant, and the data that the county attorney has should be made public. The data is not all there on the data dashboard. We don't know why cases aren't charged. We don't know. There's a lot of discretion, by the way. Um, And that's the kind of data I want to capture that's not on the data dashboard at all. But I believe in transparency, I believe in transparency with policies. You should know what my policies are, why I make decisions. I'm going to be accessible in the community, and I'm going to engage and listen. And that is the only way we are going to begin to build trust with many in our community by that transparency, which we do
2: not have now. That's a good segue to my next question. And I'm going to ask you guys to slim your answers down a little bit so we can get to more topics here. But Are there any types of charges that your office will decline to file as a matter of policy?
3: Yes. Uh, Possession of marijuana cases. And I know um, that the county attorney's office, I was at a meeting actually with the county attorney, when I was chief public defender, who said he would not charge uh, possession of marijuana cases. And so I sent out an email to our staff and then found out that they still charge them. Um, So they still charge them uh, and I will not charge those.
2: How about you, Ms. Holton, to Any any categories of cases or types of cases that you just won't want your your prosecutors to follow up
4: on? My opponent and I do agree that decriminalizing marijuana is huge. We are not going to um, criminalize low-level offenses uh, Mm -hmm. addressing marijuana. We have bigger problems with fentanyl. Um, but also, we're not going to prosecute cases of, women's, of a woman's choice to make a woman's decision to make her own choice when it comes to her body. We are not going to be prosecuting those cases.
2: First, to you here, Ms. Holtendemick, uh, departing county attorney Mike Freeman said in 2016 that he wouldn't convene grand juries to make charging decisions in police shooting related cases. Was that the right call? And is it a policy that you'll continue?
4: Thank you. I got asked this question when I interviewed with the, um, MPPOA, the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association. And they were very, very adamant about having the cases go through the, uh, uh, the grand jury. Um, I believe uh, Mike Freeman made that decision because at the time, um, there was a lot of outcry from citizens um, that it was such a secretive process, it wasn't transparent, and it was only one-sided. The prosecutor just you know, presents their case. The defense has no no word, no say, no nothing. And I think that um, in order to make it more transparent, Mike decided that he would charge those cases himself put out a decision and take the brunt of any criticism, depending on how he um, he ruled or he decided. Um, I agree with that. Um, I think, though, and, and I got a lot of pushback from um, the MPPOA because they're saying the police officers think that it's final once they go through the grand jury um uh uh process and they get a no-bill. Well it's not. It's just not they're not gonna be charged with a first degree murder, but there could be other charges pending. They also, I think, might think that that's uh that Jeopardy attaches. Jeopardy doesn't attach until both parties are heard in an open courtroom. Um and I also feel that um you have to take each case on a case by case basis. I'm not sending out my my police shootings. Um, over to the AG's office, um, I think that I have plenty of prosecutors within my office that are smart enough to deal with these cases and to address these cases. We know the law. We know what we're supposed to find. And I also will not be making any statements until we have all of the evidence, which is something that hasn't been done in the past. We need to have all the evidence, all the issues. We need to know about the law, how we're going to charge the case. We cannot capitulate to these activists because they're screaming in our faces. We need to take the time to do our job justly and thoroughly.
2: Ms. Moriarty, that policy that Mike Freeman had, where are you at?
3: Yeah, um, I would not take cases to the grand jury. And I think it's important to understand a little bit about the grand jury. Um, there's a saying that uh, a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. <laughs> and that's because the, there's no defense counsel there. There's actually no judge there. Uh, in the grand jury except to instruct the jury. The prosecutor decides who to charge, what questions to ask them. Uh, and, and so it's very one-sided and it's very secretive. Um, a lot of people don't know. Mike Freeman actually asked me my opinion about whether he should take Jamar Clark to the grand jury. And I said, At this point, no, the grand jury is so secretive. There's no way to have transparency that people in the community can trust. Um, At one point, grand juries were the barrier between the government um, and the community. That really isn't the case anymore. And so what I had suggested was that he put his best people on the case, that he come up with a decision, that he have a press conference and he be as transparent as possible um, about the decision, which is what he did. So I would not take cases to the grand jury. We're just past the point where people in the community trust that. Um, and it is, it is a way that prosecutors have hidden behind um, or their decisions by having the grand jury make a decision. And to me right now, the people of Hennepin County are electing the next county attorney to make those decisions. I would not send uh, officer-involved cases to other county attorneys as well, because that's happened. Um, We've had cases sent to Dakota County. We've had cases sent up to Crow Wing County and Brainerd. And the problem with that is the people of Hennepin County did not elect those county attorneys to make those decisions. So I will be accountable for those decisions.
2: Ms. Moriarty, uh, police officers are often critical witnesses in criminal prosecutions. How would you describe your rapport with police departments in the county, and how does that play into prosecutions in the cases your office will try to bring on your watch?
3: Mm -hmm. I was chair of the Behavioral Health Committee in Hennepin County for six years, Uh, and that was a committee, essentially, that looked at alternatives for mental health and uh, chemical dependency And I worked with police uh, quite a bit. Um, I worked with MPD when I was chief public defender on some traffic data. Um, I think that the issue that we're having right now is that there is not a lot of trust in the community. And so... What I will do as county attorney, and most people don't know this, it's actually the county attorney that sees more of the video than police leadership does. And so I will, our office will flag video of police interactions that it might just be an officer having a bad day. It might be something worse than that, but we'll make that available to every police chief so that they can have that conversation and perhaps nip the next chauvin in the bud or intervene in a bad day. Um, but it really is about partnering with police so that we can build strong cases for prosecuting violent crime. And so I will, as I said, I mentioned, I met with uh, suburban police chiefs and I will be present. I will take their, uh, you know, I I will push them to be part of the solution because I think they're an important voice in this conversation.
2: Ms. holton make what kind of rapport do you believe you have and, and how will that play into prosecutions?
4: I have a great rapport with law enforcement. In um, that ballot question that we were asked as to whether or not we should get rid of the police department, I voted no, as did most of my community over north, because we knew we needed the police department. We needed good police officers. We had over 90 homicides in north Minneapolis since George Floyd's murder, and several of the victims were children. That caused me to resign my position on the bench. I thought I could do more for the community being off the bench than on the bench. My opponent is being supported by two of the largest defund of police um, officers on her website, Ilhan Omar and Keith Ellison. She's also um, represented by uh, a dark money pack, people over prosecution, and has several people on her campaign who are police abolitionists. I ran into them this weekend when I was attending uh open uh streets over in North Minneapolis my community. So as far as the commu- the police are concerned, we need the police. We need good police officers. We need police officers from uh Minneapolis. We also need police officers of color. We 85% of our police officers are not from Minneapolis. We have to have people that are invested in my community, in our community. I'm trying to prevent, by centering on the crime that we have rampant in Minneapolis, from spreading out into the suburbs. People always say, you're always talking about Minneapolis, Minneapolis, Minneapolis. I hear that out in the suburbs. And I say, I'm doing that so that the crime we're experiencing isn't isn't going to spread to your communities, which it already has.
2: Miss Moria, we're, we're going to shift gears pretty quick, but if you wanted to briefly right. respond to the yeah. suggestions that you're aligned with, with dark money groups.
3: Um, we have built a broad and diverse coalition all across Hennepin County. I'm proud to be endorsed by my congressperson. Um, Not all of the people that have endorsed me agree with each other. Um, I am endorsed by Carlos Mariani and Cedric Frazier, the chair and vice chair of the House Committee on Public Safety. Um, Cedric Frazier presented a bill to provide police funding. Um, I am am endorsed by plenty of people who support, um, who probably voted. Well, they don't. I mean, I, I just... My campaign, by the way, has been very positive. I have not been negative. I think what voters want to hear is what I'm going to do and why I'm qualified to do it. So I have not attacked my opponents all throughout this race. What I will say about this weekend that was just referenced is that my opponent walked up to an abolitionist table at open streets and started yelling at them and apparently was spitting in the face of one of them, which is what they put on their Facebook or on social media. She responded by saying that they were my supporters. They were an abolitionist group I didn't know anything about. They don't care about prosecutors' races because they're an abolitionist group. So, you know, this fear-mongering, the lies that are being told here are something that I don't think are playing well in this campaign which is why we won by more than twice as many votes in the primary and every precinct in North Minneapolis. I'm going to continue to be positive and talk about what I am going to do because I think our, our voters deserve better.
2: Ms. holden Mixon, she invoked you. Go ahead and quickly respond, and then we're going to shift gears here.
4: Um, I approached a table of police abolitionists who had the three final police chiefs that are being considered to be our police chief pictures or their names and underneath their names were pictures of pigs. Each one of them had a different pig under their name. They were also handing out these little pigs that squeaked oink oink. This is my neighborhood. They don't belong in my neighborhood. We're trying to rebuild the trust in my neighborhood. Now, if that girl got too close to my mouth and and, and, and she might have had whatever, I did not spit on her, but I was angry because they don't belong in my community, sowing more discontent and trying to turn my community against police officers, calling them pigs and bastards. That was the poster. You can go online and find it and see it for yourself on Martha dot com. What our response was to the allegations of spitting and also what that poster symbolized in my community. Take that stuff where it sells. It doesn't sell and it can't sell in my community because we're trying to repair our relationships
2: with the police. Thank you. I want to get into some of the other things that the office is responsible for. So, Ms. Holton Dimmick, Demick, uh, what changes, if any, will you bring to the county attorney's role in procedures for handling child protection cases?
4: Child protection is huge. It is one of the um, sides of the civil division. The civil division, um, it does, contrary to what my opponent says, we represent the Hennepin County Medical Center, the commissioners, and and Hennepin County Um, offices within the county system. We don't do anything further than that. Um, I do believe that child protection is super important. What's happened in the past, we didn't have enough social workers to address some of the issues in terms of terminating parental rights or getting the rights uh, resources available to these families that are really struggling with their children. And um, so consequently, unfortunately, we had more African American children taken taken away from their families, and less of an attempt to try to re to re and you know re re um, enter them back into their families or rejoin them with their families. And that's something that I need to work on. But we have to also talk about the resources that we need, and we also need money to make sure that these um, resources are available
2: and work. Miss Moriarty, child protection cases.
3: Yeah, um, I represented kids uh, and parents in child protection cases uh, when I started my career at the Public Defender's Office, so I'm quite familiar with that system. Um, it It is important that we be looking at data. It is important. We know now that uh, research tells us that there's no parent that's perfect, right? Um, But we have taken kids away from families where they would have been better off staying in the family with support services. So we need to do better at that. One of the things I will promise you though is um, several years ago, there was some publicity about uh, children who had been harmed, who had been part of the child protection system. And our current county attorney made numerous statements. Uh, He was not shy about this saying that he was going to petition to remove children from families so that if something happened, he, he wasn't going to be to blame. Um, that is a political decision. I will not make decisions based on politics. I will make decisions based on evidence and data and what is in the best interest of children in this community and argue for more
2: resources for families. So quickly, maybe a minute, close and make a make a case for your campaign.
4: Okay, I know that I'm running for Hennepin County attorney, but I'm not a politician. I tell people I'm not a politician. They say you're running, you're a politician. I'm not a career politician. I am running because they won't appoint this office and they probably should appoint someone uh, to this office, but we'll leave it up to the voters to make that decision. Um, I am, however, someone who is um, vitally important to this office. I am specifically qualified to run an office of very smart, very dedicated uh, prosecutors who will aggressively prosecute violent criminals and who will also help re- rehabilitate uh, those people who deserve a second chance. So I am really encouraged as far as the reception I've been getting from the community and from the leaders in the community. I'm very encouraged and I'm very proud to be the next um, Hennepin County attorney.
2: Ms. Moriarty?
4: I'm proud of having run a
3: very positive campaign. As I've said, um, I have not attacked my opponents. I have talked about what I would do, specifically what I would do, and why I'm qualified to do it. My campaign is based on hope for what we know can work. It's based on the idea that we can all be safe. Everybody regardless of where you live or work, we can all be safe. And to do that, we need to do some things differently that are based on evidence and research. We cannot go back to what we've been doing for decades, which is the status quo, which hasn't worked. And what I'm really proud of is that 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 hopefulness, that idea that we can have something better for all of our communities has really resonated throughout our county. And that is why in the primary we won by more than twice as many votes and we won every precinct in North Minneapolis because people want to hear hope. They want to hear specifics about what can be done differently that will work. And I will continue to run a positive campaign. I will continue to talk about the specific things that I will do and why I'm qualified to do it. So thank you for inviting me to be here.
0: Mary Moriarty and Martha holton Dimick, the two candidates for Hennepin County attorney, they took part in a, a debate last week moderated by NPR's Brian Baxt. You can find the full debate and much more at mprnews.org. That's our program for today. Our producers are Twyla Dang and Jeff Jones. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great weekend. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live, tune in each Friday at noon.